So I realize that this particular sermon series that we're just now jumping into today may feel just a little bit jolting. We have just come off 40 days of Lent, that is 40 days of different spiritual practices and journeying with God in a specific way so that we can be drawn closer to God. Lent is a very spiritual time. Then last week we came together and we celebrated the resurrection. We celebrated Easter and the risen Christ. And if you got to be here that Sunday, it was an amazing time, a wonderful time, a holy time. It also was a very spiritual time. And then we come together here this morning, and at first glance, I'm guessing that this particular sermon topic may not feel quite as spiritual as what we might expect, especially the first week after Easter. It might even feel a little bit like a screech of sorts as we really move in a different direction by asking a number of very difficult questions, some of the what's and why's when it comes to our faith. We're going to be looking at some really difficult topics over the next number of weeks. Starting next week, we're going to be looking at the question of why God and science so often seem to conflict. We're then going to be looking at why the Bible has some really disturbing passages in it. And what are we supposed to do with those? We're going to be looking at why does God allow so much suffering to happen in our world? And then asking the question, what is the proof that God actually exists? And today we are beginning with the question, what is it about religion that seems to cause so much violence in our world? As you can tell, there's not a whole lot warm and fuzzy and overly spiritual feeling about those questions. So I realize it may feel like a bit of a jolt, again, going from Lent and Easter into this particular sermon series. But if I could gently say, nothing could be farther from the truth. To me, at least, these questions are a perfect follow-up to Easter and the celebration of the resurrection, and here's why. Because after the reality of the resurrection sunk in for the disciples, they had to figure out what was the impact, the reality of this resurrection, what impact was that going to have on their lives and how they were going to choose to live. So because Jesus was alive, that affected their impact, their understanding of how reality really works. They had never seen death be conquered before. What do you do with that? That's a science question. Because Jesus had conquered death and done what they thought was impossible, what did that mean for the other things he had said? Because he had said some really difficult things, even disturbing things when he was on earth. And scripture offers a variety of difficult passages, disturbing passages. What are we supposed to do with those difficult sayings and passages in light of the resurrection? Nobody in this world suffered more than Jesus did. God allowed his own son to suffer, and through his suffering, resurrection ultimately had the final say. So what does that have to say about the suffering that we continue to see in our world, and how do we reconcile the suffering with our faith? And then the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Savior, God in the flesh. What continued proof of that do we have today? And then for our topic here this morning, we realize that Jesus himself faced as violent a death as one could face. He faced all of the violent political forces this world had to offer. He faced the Roman Empire. He faced the Jewish religious authorities who had conspired against him. And what was the response of Jesus to the violence that was imposed upon him? How did he respond to it? That's what we're going to explore together here today. So I realize This topic, it may feel like a jolt, but I lift all of this up to say maybe it's not quite as big a jolt as we thought going from the resurrection and the celebration of Easter to these fairly difficult questions. And one of the things that I love about our faith in Jesus Christ is that it is real. 
That means our faith is real. And that means our faith directly impacts the real world that we live in. So often we tend to shy away from some of those more difficult questions. But in reality, there is so much that God has to share around these kinds of questions. And sometimes Christians are accused of not using our brains because we tend to avoid some of the more difficult questions. But I believe that God gave us brains in part to address these very types of questions we're looking at here this morning and some of the ones we're going to be wrestling together with. I am really excited about this sermon series. I hope that you are. I think there is so much for us to gain. But I will say this to you. I think that this is a sermon series that on the one hand is high reward, but it's also high risk. It is high reward because it's going to help us dive deeper in our faith, live more faithfully in the real world, and give us thoughtful responses to some of life's more difficult questions, especially when other people bring us those questions. That is all really, really good stuff. The risk, though, is that these questions, they're going to hit us personally or lend us to potentially even become emotionally charged. We're going to have different responses to what is being shared. There's going to be the temptation to immediately, as soon as something is presented, declare it as that's right or that's wrong. We're going to be tempted immediately to make political connections in our own minds about what is realistic in our world and what's not realistic when it comes to living in the real world. So before we jump even in today's question of what is religion and faith, what's the connection between them or why does religion or faith seem to cause violence? Before we even start getting to that question, there are two disclaimers that I want to put out there for us, not just for today, but for the entire series. And if we are not willing to live into these disclaimers, we might as well stop now. Because you know this, we live in a world and a culture that can't even seem to hold a simple conversation with one another if there are different ideologies behind what is being shared. And church, we absolutely must offer a different example. We must. It's yet another reason, if you remember back to the start of this year, we spent six weeks looking at the book of Ephesians. Paul stresses in the book of Ephesians the theme of unity. Why did he stress unity? Because unity is increasingly rare in our world, and we're seeing that everywhere. The world needs a different example, a different witness, and these questions give you and I an opportunity to be a different witness. And if we are not willing to engage one another in a way to allow that unity to occur, we're going to hurt ourselves in the process. So please let me put out these two disclaimers for us. Number one, as we go through the questions, let us be humble. Now, I didn't say that these were complex, but they are difficult disclaimers I'm putting out there. They are significant disclaimers I'm putting out there. It may sound obvious what I mean when I say be humble. To some degree, it is. But here's really what I mean by be humble. Can we all just agree together that each and every one of us just might, might have a little bit more to learn, that we really don't know 100% of everything, that we haven't yet figured God out 100%, and we just might have a little more room to grow? I think we would agree together we all have room to grow. But in a world of hyper-polarized talking heads and heightened political tensions, this is increasingly difficult to do and to realize. I've increasingly noticed people tend to only want to listen to what they already believe. They only want to listen more about what will confirm how they already understand the world to work. But if we're not careful in that pursuit, we can make ourselves the deciders of truth rather than Christ himself. And in a way, in this way, if we're not careful, we can end up making Scripture say what we want it to say rather than letting Scripture tell us what it needs to say. 
We're talking about the difference between us standing over authority and telling it what to do and letting the scriptures stand over us and give authority to our lives on what we should do. We must be willing to submit to the scriptures and see where that leads rather than vice versa. And that requires humility. So let us be humble with God, with one another and the scriptures, and let's see where God takes us. The second disclaimer I would lift up is this. Listen first, pray next, speak last. Again, we know that we live in a world that is quick to respond and to speak. So in this series, as we're sharing on each one of these questions, I just invite us first to listen. Take it in as intently as we can. And once we've done that, start to pray on it. Give thanks for what we've just heard. Ask God to lead us and guide us through what we've just heard. Ask God to help us discern through what we've just heard. And then once we've done that, let us speak with each other. And if we can do these two things... I believe we will grow a tremendous amount in our faith together. I hope there's going to be a whole bunch of talking in this series with each other, in our small groups, in our Bible studies, everywhere. But we have to do so, number one, with a sense of humility, and then proceeding with the order of listening, praying, and then speaking. So keeping that in mind and hopefully putting those disclaimers into practice, we jump into our first question. What is it about religion that seems to cause such violence in our world? Now, I can understand why people ask this question in the world as a whole, because truthfully, religion and faith do get mixed with war and violence. History has shown this repeatedly. There has consistently been a link between faith and violence in our world. We cannot dispute that. There are numerous horrific acts that we could look at that have been done in the name of God, done in the name of faith, done in the name of religion. That's just a truth. Now, it would be easiest for you and I to come together today and point to other religions and other faiths and say they have abused in the name of faith. Uh, They've offered violence. And I'll admit, there are practically endless examples of those things in other faiths that we could look at and say, look how they use their faith to abuse and to offer violence in our world. And no doubt we want to point to things like the the Shunis versus the Hittites and the Muslims versus the Hindus and all these kinds of things. But for our purposes today, we need to own and confess where we as Christians have linked together violence with faith or used violence and given rationale for it because of our faith or religion. And when we do that, we start to come up with some different responses to this question of what is it about religion that seems to cause so much violence in our world? And here's the first response, that throughout history, people, including Christians, have repeatedly waged wars in the name of God. This is just a fact. We have to acknowledge that. We have to confess that. The real question here, though, is this. Does the violence come from the religion Or is religion the antidote to what causes the violence? We cannot deny that Christians have used God's name to inflict war on others. The Bible even has different passages, disturbing passages, that would seem to indicate that God is sending God's people against other people to wage war on them and destroy them with much violence. And we're going to talk more about those disturbing passages in a few weeks. But the facts are pretty clear that in the past, Christians have done this. So naturally, if Christians have done this, if they've used faith as justification for war or violence against others, people, the world, are going to make a natural connection that this God we serve must endorse violence, that this faith must somehow support violence. They're going to make that natural connection because they've seen us do it. If you are a history buff, you might be familiar with the roughly 200-year period from 1096 A.D. to 1276 A.D., 
which was called the Crusades. The Crusades were a time when Christians fought. They waged war literally to get Jerusalem back from the Muslims while the Muslims were fighting to hold on to the city of Jerusalem. And at that time, there was a gentleman named Pope Urban II. And he was the one who called for the very first crusade. And here's what he said. He said, the Muslims out there are doing many horrible things against the people in the West. And during this time period, the Roman Empire was falling apart. And so what was happening is there were different Christian sects in different places. Those Christians were actually fighting against each other. Then Pope Urban II comes along and he points to a common enemy in this case, the Muslims, that he can lift up before all these Christians and say, stop fighting among yourselves. Here's the common enemy that we want to fight, and they are the Muslims. And one of the first things that this pope did is he said to the Christians at the time, listen up, here's what the Muslims have done. They have taken over the church of the Holy Sepulcher, and they've turned it into a mosque. Now, you might remember the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. That is the church that's built on the site and the place where Jesus is said both to have been crucified and then buried. So let me give you the translation here. This is a super holy place for Christian people. It's where Jesus was crucified and buried. You can't really get a much more significant holy place than that. And now this pope is coming along and saying, listen up. One of the most holy places we as Christians adhere to, it's being taken over by the Muslims. And they've turned it into a mosque. Can you imagine the feelings that would have started to erupt in the Christians at that time? We might even feel it now. How dare they? The sense of desecration of taking one of our most holy sacred spots and using it for their purposes. And what the Pope was doing in this is he started recruiting for a holy war. And the Pope promised anyone who would come and fight against the Muslims would not go into purgatory, which was a state after death, according to Roman Catholic belief, in which the souls of the people who died were made pure through suffering before going to heaven. So you come fight for us, you get to skip purgatory and go straight to heaven. That sounds great. It really wasn't much different than Muslims today who would promise that such folks who fight for them will get to go to heaven. So the Crusades were essentially a Christian version of jihad, a holy war against unbelievers. Now, eventually, the Christians, they did conquer Jerusalem at the end of the first crusade, and the date of that was July 15th, 1099. That was a day of great victory for the Christians at that time, a wonderful time of celebration. They had won. They had conquered Jerusalem. They had gotten it back. But it was a day of great horror for the Muslim people. All the Muslims saw that day were these people marching against them, wearing crosses and slaughtering some 40,000 individuals. And the stories are told of the blood being so thick and running so much that it was ankle deep as they were wading through and slaughtering one another. It would be the equivalent of our 9-11 of 2001 when planes crashed into buildings in our country, all in the name of Allah. That's just part of our story that we have to acknowledge and confess. And I share all this with us today just to say this. This is why folks, this is why the world as a whole sometimes believes that religion invokes violence. They look at history and they look at what people have done in the name of faith, the name of religion. And what they conclude is that faith leads to violence. 
This is why different folks come along, especially atheists at times, and they claim that you must give up your faith if we really want to have a world free of violence. That's why there's folks like Sam Harris, who wrote a book called Letters to a Christian Nation, or people like Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. And they make this argument. They say, if humanity is to be without violence, it must do so without God. Because religion is the cause of so much violence in our world. Just look at things like the Crusades or the violence that's happened in the name of God. Sam Harris claims the most potent form of violence is actually found in faith, not apart from it. There are even websites that make these claims. If you go to www.nobeliefs.com, you'll see these kinds of things listed there. But the claims are essentially the same, that these Christians are pushing dangerous things out into the world And the claim is that the world would be a better place. It would be violence-free if faith did not exist. Now, once more, there can be no doubt that human beings have used religion to promote war in the past. That's a given. But here's the thing that I think is so often missed. My question would be this. Does the violence come from our faith? Or does the violence come from the will of those who argue the faith? In other words, is it our faith that is the source of the violence or is it the will of the human being who's trying to live into that faith? And I think that's a pretty significant distinction. And that brings us to our second response to the question, what is it about religion that seems to cause such violence in our world? And the second response would be this. It's not the religion that causes the violence. It's the fallen human will of those who follow the religion. One of the most helpful books we have to understand, Human Will, is the very first book in Scripture, Genesis. You remember from the beginning of Genesis how life was intended to be. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, everything is really good. There's a holy high harmony between everyone and everything, between God and Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve and God, between Adam and Eve and creation, between creation and God. I mean, everything is really good, and there's no violence. And for a long time, things are really good. But then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3... Humans say, you know what, God, I would rather have my own way than your way. I'd rather focus on what I want rather than what you want. And so they see this fruit and they take the fruit and they eat the fruit. And essentially in that moment, they demand their will over God's will. And once that occurs, violence is not far behind. In fact, that happens in chapter three. Go just one more chapter, just one to Genesis chapter four. And what do we hear? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Murder in the first degree, in cold blood, the first truly violent act. And it only took one chapter, one chapter from the fall of human humanity and human will in Genesis 3. Who knows how long in Genesis 1 and 2 things were good, and we don't see any violence when the focus is on God's will. But then with the focus on human will and the fallenness of human will, it's not long after before violence enters the picture. So we can conclude the violence did not happen because of faith in God. It happened ultimately because of faith in ourselves. It was the rejection of God doing so that we could do what we wanted to do. Anger arose for Cain because he didn't get what he wanted. And it ticked him off so much so that he lashed out in anger and violence. That happened because of his focus on himself, not his focus on God. His faith in himself, not his faith in God. And I don't think we have to think very long for ourselves. In fact, I would say to each one of us, wherever we might be this day, think for just a moment 
about our own capacity to be angry or even violent people. It doesn't take much in our more honest moments to realize my temper can get set off pretty quickly, pretty fast. We're running late in the morning and so we're driving along and what happens? Somebody cuts us off on the road. What is our natural response? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not or you have faith or not. Any human being is going to be a little ticked off at that. You have to wait extra long in line. You keep looking at your watch and it's going longer and longer. Your faith isn't causing you to get more and more irritated in that moment. It just, it just comes so naturally to us. You've worked on something really hard and you love it. And somebody comes along and just criticizes it. You can feel that anger. How dare you? I poured myself into that. Man, it could be as simple as burnt toast in the morning that sets our day off on the wrong tone. We're just so irritated. Now take those small things and magnify them. Somebody hurts one of your loved ones badly. And you want to just. Somebody betrays you or steals something significant from you. You want to make them pay. It's just part of who we are. It's not the faith causing that. It's just who we are in our fallen, broken, human, sinful condition. Let me give you one other example of this. I realize this can be a pretty heavy topic as we're going through this. So I I really appreciated this example I saw because it was a more humorous example to me. But it demonstrates to me where violence really comes from and shows that every single human being, just there's a part of us that's just naturally bent or prone to being violent left to our own means. Let's go ahead and watch this video together. (laughs) I love him. (laughs) I just... I think he's great. I can see so much of myself in him. I mean, that's just it. We can all see ourselves in him because that is us. There's this propensity for violence in each and every one of us because we're broken, fallen, sinful people, people who focus on ourselves and faith in ourselves instead of faith in God. It is our short fallen nature. It's just who we are. So I would argue it's not the love of God that brings the violence. It is the love of self. It is not God's will that brings the violence, but humanity's will for itself. Thus, violence is not because of God. It is because of us in our sinful, broken state. And that brings us then to my third response to the question, what is it about religion that seems to cause such violence in our world? And that is this. We finally begin to understand Jesus is not the cause of the violence in our world. He's the cure to it. And we don't have any more clear example of this than to look at the journey and the life of Jesus himself and especially his last week on earth. And we just walked through that together through Holy Week. All the violent forces of this world were aligned against him. The political empire, the military army, the religious establishment, and he could have overthrown them all in an instant. Jesus was more powerful. He could have used more force and more violence against them and wipe them out of the way. At any given moment, all Jesus had to do, snap his fingers, more armies, stronger armies, faster armies, more multiplied armies, as angels of legions of angels would have come down. He could have wiped them all out and it would have been over. And I look at that. And I think, Jesus, why didn't you do that? In some ways, it would have been so much easier and you could have spared yourself so much grief. Why in the world didn't you use your force, your power, your holy violence and wipe them out and start fresh and anew? But even as I ask that question, I think deep in my soul, I already know the answer. And I think we in our more honest moments in our own souls already know the answer. 
And the answer is Jesus knew that response would not work. Jesus knew that just by him showing more power, more violence, or more might and having more violence, that ultimately was not going to bring peace in the world. It would just bring about more violence. And history has proven this to be true. No human empire has ever ruled forever. The Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Ming Dynasty, the British Empire, they have all come and gone. They've all risen and fallen the same way. They used their own power to conquer others until someone else came along and conquered them. Human beings carry this violence and we perpetuate this cycle of violence because it's part of our sinful, broken nature. And so the nature of violence really is this. Violence begets violence. To me, violence acts a little bit like Newton's third law, which states for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Except in the case of violence, it's more than just there's an equal and opposite reaction to an act of violence. Usually there's an even stronger response to violence, which prompts an even stronger response back, which prompts an even stronger response back. And so the violence grows and grows and grows and grows. And again, history's proven that. More violence begets more violence. Some dispute as to which century has been the most violent. But in terms of absolute numbers, the author Stephen Pinkner says this, no one doubts that the 20th century was the most violent in all of human history. So it would seem that we are escalating in our violence, not decreasing, at least at one level, because violence begets violence. Here's the thing about violence. If there's an act of violence, somebody comes and pushes me, it's not like that violent act then just vanishes. Like, there's got to be some response to it. And the only way the world knows how to respond is to push back, only push back a little bit harder, hoping they don't push back. But in time, of course, you do get pushed back. And then there's this escalation more and more and more. And I don't know if this helps you or not. It, it helps me a little bit. And I'll see if I can do this without making too much of a mess or losing. But it reminds me of taking, this is a Super Bowl, and bouncing it. Now, if I want to get rid of the bounce, what do I do? I can try to bounce it a little higher and a little higher or even a little bit harder. But what happens? Every time I push harder, it just goes up higher. So someone comes again and pushes me. And what is my response? I'll push you back even harder. That doesn't get rid of the violence. It just makes it escalate. So if I want to get rid of the bounce, what do I need to do? Try even harder and harder? No. What do I need to do? I need to find something. This is a pillow if you can't see it. I need to find something that absorbs the violence. And off it goes. I can throw it as hard as I want. It's not going to bounce anymore. Because there's something different that absorbs the violence. Thank you. I told you I'd try to do this. I'm going to try one more time. I can try as hard as I want. Barely anything. Because the pillow absorbs the violence. So the answer is, how do you get rid of the violence? You let it be absorbed. Jesus knew this. And when the world aligned against him, he had a choice. Unleash a stronger, more forceful form of what this world already knew, which he ultimately knew would lead to only more violence, or do something different. And Jesus, in love, chose to do something different with violence. He absorbed it on the cross. He absorbed your violence and my violence, your sin and my sin. And it's the only way that death could, violence could truly be defeated. Jesus is not the cause of our violence. He's the cure. 
This is why Jesus comes and he teaches and says, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 45, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Now, I know this is hard to do. I know that there are some of us thinking, that sounds great for the Bible, but I live in the real world. And I see the violence and I see the terrorism that's going on. I know how the real world works. But church, we know that the way of Jesus works. We know that the way of peace and offering love works and ultimately, eventually conquers evil and violence in our world. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. was able to change society. This is why apartheid in South Africa was finally able to end. This is why in the midst of an all-powerful Roman Empire, the message of Christ was able to flourish and overthrow an entire empire without one bullet ever being fired. What it comes down to, church, is this. We either believe that love conquers violence or we don't. We believe that God's love is greater than the violence in our world or we don't. And again, I realize to some of us that may sound unrealistic. Some may say, Matt, you're just not living in the real world. Some may even say that's just stupid. But Christian love is not a stupid unwillingness to look at the world as it is. It is, as a professor of mine once shared, the recognition that because the world is as it is, nothing less than love will do. We so often talk about trying to stop violence worldwide, and then that becomes daunting and even paralyzing. Oh, there's no way I can stop everything that's going on in our world. But we forget the answer to violence always begins one faithful act at a time, one person to one person to one person at a time. There was a man, then a young professor, who found himself on an airplane in the late 60s on a plane sitting next to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., He introduced himself to Dr. King as their journey progressed, and he revealed to Dr. King that he was active in the civil rights struggle on his very own campus. Because of his work in this racial struggle, he had become alienated from his father. He told Dr. King how his own father could not understand him and how with time they had grown apart. What can I do, he asked Dr. King, to raise the consciousness of my father and make my father see he's a racist? that all of his pious talk about loving black people is just a lie. At that point, Dr. King put his hand on the young man's shoulder and he said to him, son, your father is doing the best that he can. He has not had all of your educational opportunities, opportunities which, by the way, he's provided for you. As a Christian, you must be patient with him and love him. Do you hear it? Humility, listening and prayer, responding in love. Today, you and I come as sons and daughters of the living king. We also come alienated from our heavenly father. But God, through his son, Jesus, has been patient and loving with us. And God, through Jesus, has provided a way to the father, not through more violence and not through more force, but through love and sacrifice. So how appropriate today that we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's meal. How appropriate that we have a chance to talk about this topic. 
and realize that the answer to violence is the Lord's table, the meal that he provides, where Jesus says, here's my body, here's my blood, shed, broken for you. May we follow the example of Jesus Christ. Every single time we share in the meal, may it empower us to live lives of humility and love and realize that the most powerful force in the universe is not violence, but God's holy love. And may we learn to offer the world the love that it needs as the cure to the violence which so often persists. May God have God's way with each and every one of us this day. Amen.